Hi there. You're listening to The Hellenistic Age Podcast. Episode 50, A Q&A Celebration. Well, here we are. Episode 50. I mean, technically we've done more than 50 if we were to count bonus and interview episodes, but this is an arbitrary milestone, so what the hell. Now's as good of a time as any. It's been roughly two years and three months since we started this journey, and I am very proud of the way this little experiment has turned out. But I would like to say thanks to everyone for listening to and supporting the podcast. It's an amazing feeling to hear when people who listen to the show say that they were glad to see their favorite period of history covered, or those newbies to the topic who had little direction as to where to start. For the last few months, I've been collecting your questions to answer about nearly any and all topics, ranging from general inquiries about podcasting, book recommendations, personal questions, and opinions on historical events. I've decided to arrange the structure of this Q&A according to those categories, and I will be upfront and say that I've read them all over and have given my answers some thought and organization in order to be more coherent. I mean, for God's sakes, you wouldn't want to hear me just go, um, ah, all the time. I mean, you have no idea what's going on in the background of this podcast. I have no idea how long this will end up being, but I've got my bottle of mango green tea with some ice and am ready to get this thing going. So, let us begin. From Sean and many others, what got you into podcasting? This is a kind of an extension of questions, so I'll try to keep myself from rambling. History has always interested me to some extent or another. Ever since I was a kid, watching movies like Gladiator and The Thirteenth Warrior, or just going over books from the school library about Pompeii or the bubonic plague, but I never really dedicated myself to it. Instead, I studied biology, philosophy, and I got my MBA as I went into university. In my first year, I took a course on ancient Roman culture with an amazing professor, uh, Dr. Robert Now, and I read Caesar, Life of a Colossus by Adrian Goldsworthy. From that moment on, I kind of fell in love with Roman history and began to devour book after book. So how does this relate to podcasting? Well, I had been listening to podcasts and radio shows since I was 13, and now I'm 25, so it has been quite a while. They've mostly been focused on comedy, video games, movies, and even a little bit of true crime and paranormal, but I didn't discover history podcasting until the start of my second year of university. I stumbled across The History of Rome by Mike Duncan on accident, only a few hours before the first day of classes. And after listening to that over the rest of the school year, I fell into the rabbit hole, so to speak. Long drives, graveyard shifts at work, and shoveling snow gave me plenty of time to burn through several shows. And since I tend to get bored quite easily without something to focus on, it became part of my everyday routine. Besides, I also found it hard to dedicate time to personal reading when I was already doing a fair amount of schoolwork or personal chores. So my thought process was, if I couldn't learn through reading, learn by listening. During this time, I happened to pick up a lecture series from the great courses on Audible using like a free credit entitled Alexander the Great and the Macedonian Empire, which was my first real exposure to anything remotely related to Alexander, and it kind of blew my mind at how interesting that period of history was. I mean, in school, it was you had Greece and Rome and, you know, other civilizations like Egypt and Mesopotamia, but nothing about Alexander. He kind of was 
this character that just existed in a separate dimension. And I really only knew his name. I mean, you know, Alexander the Great, but never knew anything he did. Uh, within a few years, I moved from reading biographies about Alexander to just up and buying all the available ancient accounts in Alexander's life and reading them parallel to one another. At this point, the next logical step was for me to move from Alexander the Great to the time immediately afterwards, the Hellenistic period. And so I somehow managed to find a cheap copy of From Alexander to Actium by Peter Green, which is an absolutely enormous book. Now, I knew even less about the Hellenistic world than I initially did about Alexander, with only a maybe a vague idea due to playing video games like Rome Total War and tertiary exposure by reading Roman history. I got through 50 pages or so in Peter Green's book before I had to give up. It was an absolute slog given how dense it was, at least to me, so for the time being I gave up learning more about it. Fast forward to April of 2018, I'm in my car, driving 14 hours from university to my home, and while I was listening to lecture series on the Vikings, I began to talk to myself in the car, like any sane person would. I'd actually been throwing around hypotheticals about what I could talk about in regards to any historical subject, after I naively thought to myself, yeah, I probably could run my own history podcast. The life of Alexander the Great was something I knew reasonably well, and I had the research materials to go more in depth, but I didn't think that was enough. I had desperately wanted to learn more about the Hellenistic world since that was such an interesting period of history from the Roman perspective, and I thought it was a relatively untapped subject at the time. So I thought, teach myself about the Hellenistic age and turn it into a podcasting project. The very next day, I cobbled a script for episode one, recorded it through GarageBand on my iPhone and Apple headphone microphone, and bam, I had begun the Hellenistic age podcast by the seat of my pants. And it really shows. I can't bear to listen to any of my older episodes, since I think they're absolutely terrible in terms of script writing, audio quality, depth of content, and I think even my fifth episode I managed to slip a damn into there somewhere without me knowing for months on end. I'm absolutely stunned that you listeners managed to put up with it. I had conceived of my podcast to be functionally similar to Mike Duncan's History of Rome, a narrative covering from Alexander to Cleopatra, but I really wanted to expand the scope and type of show that it was. By the very nature of the subject, I was already dealing with the challenges of trying to weave a narrative thread for at least three different kingdoms, namely the Seleucids, Ptolemies, and Antigonids. While they form my bedrock and so will receive the most coverage, I ended up pushing myself to make my podcast a comprehensive look, covering not only the successor kingdoms, but pretty much everything else to some degree or another during the time period. Patrick Wyman's Fall of Rome and Ryan Stitt's History of Ancient Greece podcast were super influential in that regard, along with pushing me to try and reach out to scholars and specialists of the Hellenistic Age that provide an opportunity for people to talk about their research, and flush out the details on topics that I am only scratching the surface of. Looking back, there are a lot of things I would have done differently when starting out, and if you're interested, uh, please feel free to message me. I mean, I, there's plenty of tips out there. Make sure to be more prepared than I was. This kind of was a fluke. But if you have the passion for it, I think it's you know very possible for anybody to do it. Uh, I mean, that is essentially the long and short how I became a podcaster. And if anything, it proves that if someone like me can do it, then anyone else can do it too. 
Next question from Henry, a host of the History of the British Isles podcast, which I think has changed to Britain and Ireland in the early Middle Ages podcast. How long do you envision the Hellenistic Age podcast continuing for? So, in general, my goal is to have the show completely finished within the next five years, with five years being the absolute maximum cutoff point. 300 years of history is a considerable amount of time, and the approach I am taking by not only covering the Hellenistic kingdoms, though they are definitely my anchor and main focus, means that my work is further complicated because I'm trying to keep the show from becoming dis too disjointed in the overall narrative, uh, you know, and given that it's hard to predict anything in terms of, you know, real life events and things like the coronavirus, you know, the timeline constantly is changing. I'm not too sure if there's a specific way I would go about saying it, but I think five years is my appropriate guess for what it is. I think after, anything after that, I'm like kind of pushing it. <laughs> But uh, that's, yeah, that's generally the look. So let's say seven years in total and five years from now, hopefully. Now, so from Fry, host of Pontifax Podcast, what are you most looking forward to covering in the next year? Now, I tend to plan episode outlines only about four to five months in advance, uh, depending on the circumstances at any one time or how much material I've read and think I could pull out. And what I mean by four to five months in advance, I'm thinking, okay, it's going to be uh, episode 51 is going to be this, 52 is going to be that, 53, that, you know, so on and so forth. And coming up with titles is usually the first thing I do about it, just out of, just out of, as an idea. That being said, the next 12 months should be pretty interesting. We're going to talk much more in depth about the Seleucid and Ptolemaic realms. Uh, for instance, episodes on life as an Egyptian under Ptolemaic rule compared to the life as a Greek under Ptolemaic rule. Uh, the first Seleucid collapse is on the immediate radar, uh, namely the War of the Brothers, the emergence of Parthia, and the secession of Bactria. Around this time next year, we should be either starting or in the middle of the 139th and 140th Olympiad. That's going to be roughly 224 to 216 BC. This means the Fourth Syrian War, the Social War, and the Second Punic War all concurrent to one another with some of the most famous figures in ancient history taking part. So yeah, it's gonna get pretty action-packed and I'm trying to figure out the best way to go about it without it becoming too disjointed and not connected enough. Maybe I should just follow the Polybius route and go from there. Question number four from Kara. What episode proved the hardest to research or find sources on so far? Now off the top of my head, I know the answers to both questions immediately. The one that I had the most trouble finding sources for was episode 32, The Mauryan Empire of India. And it also happens to be one of the episodes I am most proud of personally. There are almost no books on the Mauryan in English, and I knew virtually nothing about them beyond a few names prior to starting the episode. Despite that, I was able to gather a pretty diverse collection of sources to compare and contrast, whether it was from Greece and Rome or ancient and medieval India, and try to weave all the various fragments together into something relatively cohesive and comprehensive. It has also proven to be one of my most popular episodes to date based on reading my statistics. I think it's like five or six. Uh, it's, 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 it's up there at least. So I think I was able to help out a lot of people who really wanted to know more about the Moria, but had no clue where to begin. The second question, uh, which episodes were the hardest to research, would be any of the episodes on Hellenistic philosophy. That was a miserable experience, uh, mainly since the material is so dry and dense, 
even with the excellent commentaries and studies I had gotten a hold of. And I'm pretty frustrated that it took me as long as it did to sit down and properly write each one out. A lot of comments from listeners suggest I did at least a passable job, but for what it's worth, I'm glad it's over and done with and we can move on and never talk about it again. <laughs> uh, question five from Jordan and Tarma. What are some of your favorite books that are about the Hellenistic Age? Over the last few years, I've had the opportunity to expand my library with a large number of books on the Hellenistic period. Many I've read completely, and many that I've just skimmed right through for the sake of brevity. At this point, there are a few books I can list that I think are just plain enjoyable, or really changed the way I looked at the period as a whole, and so I have them right next to me. Uh, let's see, the first one here is The Poison King, The Life and Legend of Mithridates, Rome's Deadliest Enemy by Adrienne Meyer. It's one of the best biographies I've ever read on any figure from the Hellenistic period and sheds light on a lesser-known figure and region from the ancient world, that being Mithridates VI of Pontus. It's very accessible for a general audience without squandering its academic integrity, which is kind of the ideal point for any popular history. And I tend to enjoy the books of uh, Adrian Meyer in general. I read her uh, book on uh, chemical warfare in the ancient world, and so I kind of, this was a natural progression. Uh, so the next one is The Land of the Elephant Kings, Space, Territory, and Ideology in the Seleucid Empire by Paul J. Cosman. Now this one came out of that field for me. It's a study on how the Seleucid kings perceived the territory and orientation of their empire from both a literal and metaphorical sense, which dictated how they should rule just as much as they imposed their will upon the land to change according to their needs. It's not necessarily for beginners, but it's really well written given the nature of the subject and was a very unique angle to approach ancient history with. I'd love to see something like that for the Roman Empire as well, but I have not heard of anything, so you know, feel free to let me know if I'm wrong on this. And uh, the last one is The Hellenistic Far East, Archaeology, Language, and Identity in Greek Central Asia by Rachel Mares. Uh, as the title implies, it talks about the Greco-Bactrian and Indo-Greek kingdoms which emerged during the middle to later Hellenistic period. While it's a great summation on the archaeology of Iconum, it really digs into the nature of identity, ethnicity, and Hellenism in Central Asia and India during this time. Uh, one example is her comparison of an ethnic Indian proudly showcasing his knowledge of Greek language and culture versus a Prakut-speaking Greek ambassador named Heliodorus. Uh, no spoils just yet, though, but... I think it was really uh, an interesting way to frame the way we look at the Hellenistic Far East, which always had this kind of exotic perception, and you know, it's like, it's Athens in India, you know, that kind of mentality, but it really did change the way I kind of looked at it. So I'm really looking forward to covering those and maybe giving my take on, on those topics, but we'll, we'll have to wait and see what happens in the future, so... Uh, there are plenty of other authors and books I can name drop, like John D. Granger, who has wrote a ton of the books on the period, which I've used for research. But I tend to post photos of almost every book I read from start to finish on my social media accounts. And I have bibliographies for each episode. And even more recently with my transcripts, I've given exact locations of texts and exact passages I borrowed. So you can go there and kind of figure out which ones I tend to rely on more. And perhaps when I, but you know, perhaps when I get further along, I can make some sort of master list or visual guide for all the books I've used and recommend. Uh, but for now, those are my general suggestions for the moment. Question number six from Tarma and Socrates Man. What are some of your favorite books? 
I assume by favorite books we mean history books. As I've mentioned before, probably my favorite history book is Caesar, Life of a Colossus by Adrian Goldsworthy, which is a biography of Julius Caesar by my favorite history authors, so it fits. It doesn't sacrifice academic uh, integrity for the sake of a narrative, or it's not sensationalized, and it kind of strikes that nice balance, which is what I aim for in the way I present my show, but uh, yeah, that's probably my favorite one. Another one is Kyle Harper's Fate of Rome, Climate, Disease, and the End of an Empire, which uh, is definitely appropriate given the current circumstances, but more seriously, it blends history and biology, which are two of my favorite subjects, uh, talking about diseases, parasites, and human health in the ancient world. Uh, a World Undone by J.G. Meyer is an amazing single-volume work covering the First World War and is not a strict military history. It kind of gives you a taste of every topic possible without kind of overloading you. And if you're looking for anything on the First World War, that's the place I'd recommend to go to. I love Robin Lane Fox's Alexander the Great biography uh, and J.E. Lendon's Soldiers and Ghosts, which talks about the psychology of ancient warfare from the perspective of the Greeks and Romans. So it's a different kind of take on a military history. You're not so much focusing on the tactics as much the cultural and societal implications of violence and uh, manliness and honor and how does that relate to a military context. So that's something I really, really enjoyed reading. As for anything that's like not history related, I love Lord of the Rings. I'm going to reveal myself as a bit of a Philistine, but I like the movies more. The There's also, in a similar vein, the Redwall series by Brian Jocks, which was like my go-to book series as a young adult and like an adolescent. There's The Brothers Karamazov by Fyodor Dostoevsky. Uh, I'm kind of a sucker for 19th century existentialist Russian literature, so I have not yet read Tolstoy's War and Peace. It's on my to-do list now that I actually know a bit about Napoleon, um, but that's probably... One of those, yeah, maybe one day, but not in the immediate future. That's very far off. And I guess lastly, uh, Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian. And uh, those who know what I'm talking about will completely understand, but uh, this is pretty grimdark. And if you like kind of a horror version of a Western, I guess if anyone's seen Bone Tomahawk, you're going to get kind of something like that on steroids <laughs> mixed with uh, Stream of Consciousness prose. It's a bit of a challenge to read it first, but once you get into it, you really get into it. And I think those kind of sum up my overall favorite books and history books and the like. So, uh, question seven from Jordan Brady. You've mentioned on your podcast you're a fan of Adrian Goldsworthy's books. Do you know if his fiction books are any good? He has a series about Roman Britain. Uh, yeah, uh, Goldsworthy has wrote a few historical fiction books, uh, some on Roman Britain, like you mentioned, and there are, I think there are some on the, the Napoleonic Wars. I think like one's called Waterloo. I have to admit that I am not much a fan for historical fiction in general, at least when it comes to books, so I can't speak to their quality, though I get a lot of recommendations for Mary Reynolds' books on Alexander and the like. I tend to enjoy historical fiction when it's in some sort of comic format or graphic novel, usually because I like seeing artists bring those periods to life with reasonably accurate visuals and aren't limited by budgets like television and film productions are. Um, there's a few related to Alexander the Great that are out there or in the process of being made. Uh, there's the manga History by Hitoshi Iwaki, who's the same guy who did Parasite, if you know anything a little bit about anime. Comic artist Alexandra Filipek is working on a series taking place during Alexander's invasion of Persia with 
the Persian perspective, and a graphic novel adaptation of The Alexander Romance is under production by artist Remina Yi. There is also other ancient history comics like Matt Crott's Kiri, which takes place in Roman North Africa, and Conquest by Tarek Ben Yaklef and Vincent Pompetti, which is kind of like a historical adaptation of Caesar's Conquest of Gaul. You know what, I'll just put a full listing of all the books and artists mentioned so far in the show notes, so that way you can check them out more conveniently without having to me, you know, stumble and mumble through them. Uh, but yeah, those are generally what I prefer, and uh, TV shows I really like, like HBO's Rome, taking the perspective of Titus Pullo and Lucius Farinas and stuff, so. But books, I like just like a, a regular book, I can't say I'm a huge fan of, so apologies, I can't speak much to them. Number eight, from Kyle. Hey Derek, I was wondering if you were a fan of the game Imperator Harome. It starts during the Diodohoi Wars and ends around the Battle of Actium, and has all the Hellenistic kingdoms in the Roman Republic. I've never made it a secret that I enjoy playing video games, and anything that involves the ancient world is pretty much right up my alley. I've sunk almost 200 hours onto Rome Total War, even with all of its weird design choices like Roman ninjas or pink pajama wearing Parthians, and more recently I played through Assassin's Creed Odyssey and Origins and had a great time on both. Not particularly excited for Valhalla, but whatever. Uh, but when it comes to Imperator Rome, uh, Crusader Kings 2, or any sort of paradox grand strategy game, I can't say that I ever really got into that sort of gameplay. First and foremost, I'm a bit of a dummy when it comes to that kind of stuff, uh, and I tried playing Crusader Kings 2 a few years ago to little success, even with a special guide for beginners and on Ireland as the tutorial island, and it just flew over my head. Maybe it was because it was about the Middle Ages, something I'm nowhere near as familiar with in regards to terminology, or maybe it's because I prefer more instant gratification and action set pieces like a Total War game, but I didn't enjoy the experience. Maybe someday I'll give Imperator a shot, uh, but not at the moment and not at full price. Maybe if it goes on Steam sales or something like that for five bucks, I don't know. We'll see. Uh, number nine, uh, from Steven. Since you're doing a show on the Hellenistic period, obviously you must like it, but what other periods, places, or people in history do you love to learn about? Now I've admitted it several times in the past that my favorite subject and period of history is anything to do with the Romans, whether it's Romulus and Remus to the fall of Constantinople in 1453. It also by extension introduced me to the Hellenistic period, which also coincides with my favorite part of Roman history, so there's that too. Uh, the ancient world from the Mediterranean to the Near East in general piques my interest, and there's really not a topic or a time period I find boring or relatively dull in it, except for maybe archaic and classical Greece, but that's just my opinion. I won't go any further than that, so I apologize to those who are big fans. Outside of ancient history, I really enjoy learning about the First World War, less so about the mechanics and tactics of war, and more about the political affairs, the societal, cultural, and economic impact of the war. And I just like the aesthetics of the period, which is why maybe I enjoyed the... Uh, 1917 movie so much. That's that's an amazing film. I recommend that strongly. Um, Late Antiquity is another favorite. And honestly, if I were not doing a show on the Hellenistic period, I probably would have done a podcast covering the same approximate region from the crisis of the third century to the rise of Islam. The history of diseases and medicine is kind of my niche topic, which is probably why Kyle Harper's book is so attractive to me as I love to study past plagues and pandemics, the health of humans living in pre-modern societies, and how people attempted to cope with infection or injury using medicinal practices that are either bizarre or downright macabre. 
these are generally what I go for. But, you know, in all fairness, I think that any topic can be interesting as long as it's presented with enough enthusiasm and skill, which many authors and podcasters have successfully done. Question 10 from Tarma. Who are your favorite ancient Greek or Greeks to study? Now, I have to confess for the most part that I never found archaic or classical Greece terribly interesting, including the Peloponnesian War. Uh, so that includes stuff like Pericles, Alcibiades, Socrates, and Plato. So I can't really say I enjoy that period. Uh, I do have a fondness for Herodotus because I appreciate his whole mentality and he seems like a very earnest kind of character. Once we start hitting Philip II and Alexander, my attention really does get fixated. I would say that Alexander the Great takes the number one spot simply because his life is just so ludicrously jam-packed with interesting events and personalities. After Alexander, it boils down to the Seleucids, the Ptolemies, and the Greco-Bactrians and Indo-Greeks. Um, I never really had an interest in the Antigonids, though I'm kind of warming up to them over time, but they're kind of uh, vanilla, I guess would be the term for it. Uh, but, you know, we're only in the beginning, so we'll see what happens. The Seleucids and Greco-Bactrians and Indo-Greeks are more exotic and more mysterious, so I'm kind of drawn to them for that reason. Uh, just they have that aura of mystique about them, like Homer in India. Like, that is just an ins insanely interesting idea. But, you know, after doing the podcast, the antics of the Ptolemies so far have been wildly entertaining. I mean, like, look at what happened with Arsinoe II and Ptolemy Carinus and just that whole incest and murder intrigue. And they're generally a little bit better documented than, than any of the other three are. So that's probably why I find them so interesting. So, yeah, I think... Uh, character alexander's first and then probably the hellenistic kingdoms in general are kind of what i find the most interesting so we'll have to see if there's any particular ones question 11 from jordan which kind of coincides from the previous one who are some of your favorite historical leaders from this era besides the really well-known ones like alexander or cleopatra uh, since we've only covered about two to three generations of the hellenistic dynasty so far my perspective is going to be pretty limited, and there's a similar question to like this coming up, so I might have to be refraining from speaking my mind. The Diodohoi are all in their various ways extremely interesting, which I will talk about in a little bit. Antiochus III is an interesting character who rebuilds his crumbling empire into the biggest power in the Hellenistic world and effectively manages it for almost 40 years before immediately butting heads with the Romans who turn out to be carrying just as equally of a big stick as he does. Uh, Menander I of the Indo-Greek kingdoms has this like huge aura of mystery around him, being a convert to Buddhism and ruling in India and the like. Uh, Amastris of Paphlagonia, the last Achaemenid princess who survived the purging of the Achaemenid family and functionally becomes an independent queen along the Black Sea, really surprised me of how interesting her life story was. And um, Ashoka the Great of India, who starts out as this extremely warlike emperor who then becomes like a pious and remorseful Buddhist and tries to spread the word of peace as part of a self-imposed penance. There's a lot of people I didn't mention, and we've only hit the middle of the 3rd century, and this is even before I get to people like uh, Hannibal and Scipio Africanus, and then the later Romans like Marius, Sulla, but that's those people are more well-known. I'm trying to stick to the Hellenistic uh, characters. Um, so we'll see what happens. Maybe my, maybe I'll do a Q&A and I'll kind of reflect, you know, has my opinion changed? But yeah, that's uh, generally some of my favorite historical figures. Uh, question 12 from Sean. If you could go back in time and inhabit the body of any Hellenistic personality for a day, who would you be? I suppose it boils down to two categories. 
either I choose a personality at a specific time that would give me the most information to take back to the present and radically alter the way we study the ancient world, or I try for a personal favorite event or a person to try to fulfill my geeky dreams. Uh, being any one of the important commanders in the Palace of Babylon on the day of Alexander's death, or to take part in the cavalry charge at Galgamela, um, traveling as a king through the cities of Egyptian Alexandria or Ikonum at their height would tell me so much about how the people lived, whether in the court or among the commoners. I mean, never mind being able to see so many monuments and landmarks in their pristine original forms. It's really hard to choose. But assuming I am only an observer with a reasonably strong stomach, I think I would inhabit the body of either Scipio Asiaticus or Antiochus III during the Battle of Magnesia. We have very little idea about how ancient battles were actually fought, uh, the psychology of people involved, uh, you know, do people just charge at a big mass of pointed sticks, so even seeing a few minutes would be of immense value. On the geeky side, I get to see the bristling spears of the Macedonian phalanx and the buzzsaw of the Roman legions in action. I get to see war elephants and even the types of clothing and armor that people wore. Of course, I will also see the more grim elements of war and conflict, which I really don't need to go into detail about, but I hope any of my listeners who study the ancient world outside of a military context will forgive me, but, you know, as a runner-up, I'd love to beat any of the Indo-Greek or Greco-Bactrian kings just to see what life was like in the Hellenistic Far East, because we know virtually almost nothing about it. So, yeah, those are I guess those are my two that I would say. Uh, question 13 from Kara. What places that are still around from the Hellenistic Age would you like to travel to? Uh, it's unfortunate that most of the great monuments built during the Hellenistic period, uh, stuff like the Lighthouse of Alexandria and the Colossus of Rhodes, are just basically rubble and ruins, or we can't even find them. Uh, kudos to the Egyptians for making the Great Pyramid of Giza last as long as it has. Uh, in all seriousness, though, if you... If given the option, I think I would love to visit the ruins of Pergamon, uh, specifically its Acropolis. It's one of the few that hasn't been completely covered over by layers of civilization because it literally sits atop of a great plateau. And the, the view is just absolutely stunning to look at, kind of like a Machu Picchu of Anatolia. I mean, I still have to visit Rome and Istanbul first, but I'll definitely place it at number three on my list of two visits. So, yeah, the Acropolis of Pergamon would be the place I would like to travel to the most. Alright, so now we're going to move more on to, like, specific historical questions. Question 14 from Jameson Minto from musingsofcleo.com Is Hellenistic actually a useful label for the period of history you are studying? This question is based on the way your podcast doesn't limit itself to just speaking about the Greeks after Alexander, but all the cultures they interacted with. I think it might be interesting for you to look into the origins of the word Hellenistic in German scholarship and what they were aiming to do with that label, and how has it changed in the present. Um, if I remember correctly, I briefly touched upon the definition of Hellenism in the introductory episode for my show. Uh, to go over it again, uh, Johann Gustav Dreusen, a 19th century German scholar, pioneered the term Hellenism in his work, and you know, forgive my butchering of the German language, uh, Gescheicht de Hellenismus, uh, covering the political history from Alexander the Great to 221 BC. For Droysen, uh, the period was a watershed moment, uh, a unification of East and West, where Greek culture superseded Oriental despotism and created sort of a new world order, which ultimately would pave the way for the arrival of Christianity. Now, by this point in the podcast, I hope to have already shown you that this is a pretty archaic way of looking at it and how culture and exchange is more complicated you know i i'm not trying to 
when I use Hellenistic, I'm not trying to say that it's a, a superior evolution or a superior way of thinking. Culture, it's, it's also not just a one-way exchange. Uh, yeah. It's not like Greek onto Iranian or Greek onto Egyptian, Greek on Indian. You're getting returns back. It's a mutual exchange. You can't just have a one-way thing going on. I mean, I utilize the term the Hellenistic Age because, well, number one, for marketing reasons, but uh, number two, I still think it's a useful label. Now, I've seen people consider changing it from Hellenistic to Macedonian centuries, but if we are speaking in a general sense where the major political and cultural players of the time are primarily Greek in origin expression, at least from Central Asia to the Mediterranean, which is what I'm kind of limiting my podcast to, then I still think it's pretty appropriate. Obviously, the context is in the context is change. I try to make it a point in the show that, you know, the exchange is not just one way. One of the things is I also want to try and cover the different cultures and, you know, civilizations because it also, will, I kind of talked about this in the last episode. It's a way that you can also look at the Romans and Greeks from a different perspective. I mean, doing an entire episode from the Iranian point of view of Alexander's conquests, uh, doing one about barbarian, or I guess quote-unquote barbarian societies like the Galatians and the Thracians. It's ways that you can kind of reflect on the way that the Greeks and Romans interacted. And also because the Greeks and Romans never really just operated in a, in a, a closed environment. They, they dealt with the Indian emperors. They dealt with steppe nomads. And that was important to them. So I, I think it's essential that I at least cover the basic ideas as to what those societies are like so when I actually talk about it in relation to the Greeks or the Macedonians or the Romans or whatever, it's going to be going to be a clear picture. Uh, but I mean, the Greek powers were still the dominant ones at the time, so I think Hellenistic is appropriate. It refers to the successor kingdoms from Alexander's death and his death and the establishment of those successor states really defined Eurasian history for that point, at least from like the Eastern Mediterranean till India. So I think it's I still think it's appropriate, and I think that's. I think the con the old context of it is not really as relevant, and I don't think anybody I don't think most people don't even know about it. I think we we've changed that view since like almost 150 years. We've changed our perceptions on it, so I think it's not as big of an issue. And I think Hellenistic Age is still totally appropriate. I mean, it gets across the idea, you know, dominance of these political things. Macedonian centuries is just another coat of paint. I think we just we might as well just stick with the regular, but just be aware that it was it is more complicated than that. So that's generally my perspective. That's a good question, though. Thank you for asking that. Uh, question 15 from Tony. Some historians see the defeat of Actium and the subsequent incorporation into Rome as the end of the Hellenistic period. Do you agree? I would fundamentally argue, yeah, that's the case. This is one of those things where we like to affix a specific date as a major transitional period, like how... 477 is the collapse of the Western Roman Empire in the beginning of the Middle Ages, and 1453 was the collapse of the Eastern Empire, though technically these dates could be rather malleable depending on our definition of ending. You know, technically, does the Byzantine Empire collapse with 1453, or when the last outposts of the Trebizond Empire collapse in like 10 years later? It's, 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 you can easily start sliding it. Uh, technically, the Ptolemaic line did not end with Cleopatra's death. I mean, her descendants would marry to the royal house of Mauritania in northwestern Africa and rule till the 1st century AD. Uh, the Mithridata dynasty in Pontus would last into the 3rd century. And the Indo-Greek kingdoms were still kicking around until the 1st century AD as well. 
Now, Cleopatra's death and subsequent annexation of Egypt by Rome is very convenient as an ending date because it is the last major kingdom founded by Alexander the Great's immediate successors to lose political independence. And also, Augustus effectively becomes the first princeps now that he's the sole uncontested power in the empire. So not only does it mark the end of the Hellenistic period, it marks the beginning of the Roman Empire. So if we're looking for any sort of dates to, to affix something to, I think that's a pretty good one to stick with. So that is the model I follow. And it is a nice bookend to the show, you know, when one ends and the other begins. So question 16 from Ingo the Gringo and Nathan. What is the greatest legacy of the Hellenistic age? So usually with any sort of question like this, I'm thinking who is the most influential figure or the most influential ideas? And the answer is almost always going to be religion to some extent or another. The translation of the Hebrew Bible into Koine Greek is so monumentally important to the development of not only Judaism, but of Christianity and Islam that it's extremely hard to top that. The patronage of scientists and philosophers in places like Alexandria allowed for the brilliance of Euclid, Archimedes, and Eratosthenes, who all contribute to our understanding of mathematics and physics. These are generally the types of answers I've seen bandied about in the various books I've read or anybody on, like, posting on forums about it, but I would like to offer my own take. I believe that one of the greatest legacies of the Hellenistic Age was actually how it facilitated the rise and later survival of the Roman Empire. Hear me out. I think that the Romans were amazing administrators of their own accord, and I think certainly much of the legal system and propelling of Christianity into a world religion was a major achievement on their own. But I do think that the policies of the Hellenistic kingdoms in the regions of like Asia Minor, Syria, and Egypt made it that much easier for the Romans to establish control. The East was fabulously wealthy, and the Romans were able to take advantage of the urban settlements and administrative layout organized and built up by the successor states, and neatly slid themselves into the pre-existing system. To my knowledge, the Romans had to essentially start from scratch in provinces like Gaul and Britannia, which did not have the same levels of urbanization and therefore were of lesser concern overall, and uh, I will admit there were some hiccups. Meanwhile, the East dictated Roman foreign policy for centuries thanks to its strategic importance and its proximity to the great powers of the Parthians and, or Sassanids. Uh, the cities of Antioch, Ephesus, and Alexandria remained important cultural and commercial centers, and eventually the focal point of the empire soon shifted to Constantinople where it would survive for another thousand years after the last emperor in the West was disposed. I don't necessarily believe that the Roman state would have lasted for as long without the wealth and relative stability of the eastern provinces. I mean, imagine a world with no Byzantine Empire. I mean, I can't possibly speculate any more than that, but that's precisely the point. This is an impact that can't be understated. Uh, question 17 from Kenneth and Randall. Who is your favorite Diodohoi? Oh, there are so many to choose from. Uh, speaking from the heart, though, uh, the ones that would make my top three would have to be Seleucus, Eumenes of Cardia, and Ptolemy. Eumenes of Cardia is like the true underdog of the story, uh, at every point expected to fail miserably, but by luck and skill proves himself against more experienced and able generals, while also unlucky enough to be caught on the losing side of each time. Uh, to borrow from a book title, Eumenes being a Greek among Macedonians already creates an interesting scenario where he's seen as his outsider figure and pencil pusher by the other Diodohoi and even many of his own troops. He's also probably the only one to really try and preserve the state of the Argian Empire, uh, see his alliances with Olympius and Perdiccas, but in the end he 
becomes just as renegade and, and independent-minded as the rest of them and dies because of his misplaced trust. So Lucas is sort of another underdog character, a man who keeps his cards close to his chest until the opportune moment and then goes from being a background character to holder of the largest slice of the Argiad pie. I mean, his character arc is interesting, but we just don't have that much about him to go off on. And it is really hard to get a grasp of Seleucus' personality or wit compared to the other successors without somebody like Plutarch doing a life on him. Uh, and finally, there's Ptolemy. Initially, I would have said Seleucus is the greatest of the Diodohoi. Uh, see my next question. But when really thinking about it, Ptolemy would have to take the spot as my favorite successor to read or talk about. To put it simply, Ptolemy is a talented general, a brilliant politician, and just enough of a bastard to make him so intriguing. I mean, the guy was a major reason why Alexander's empire had collapsed on itself. He stole the corpus of his dead friend and caused an empire-wide civil war in order to turn it to a lucky talisman and museum piece. He made himself into an Egyptian pharaoh and took control of the richest lands in the world that would outlast all of his rivals. And he died, comfortably in bed, at a ripe old age after spending decades taking part in some of the greatest expeditions the world would ever see, while everyone else died violently on the field of battle or were murdered. I mean, how can you not love him? My episode on Ptolemy I was one of my favorites I've ever done, so yeah, uh, Ptolemy I would definitely be my favorite Diodohoi or successor. I mean, shoot, look, look at his credentials comparatively. Question 18 from Game Research underscore E. Who was the true heir to Alexander the Great? Ah, so here's sort of the part two to the previous question. If we establish the criteria of what makes somebody Alexander's heir, it could include things like who has control of most of the empire, who has the connections to the Argate house, who reflects some of Alexander's ideas, etc., etc. Uh, for what it's worth, I'm going to say that of all the successors, Seleucus is the true heir of Alexander. Although he has no ties by marriage to the Argead house, Seleucus comes closest to achieving the same levels of success as Alexander. He nearly reunited the Argead Empire just before his death. And I have to wonder if he wasn't murdered by Ptolemy Karanos, could he have also taken Egypt as well? He repeated Alexander's anabasis by reconquering much of the eastern satrapies and waged wars in India against the might of Chandragupta. His military prowess can be seen in the victories against the Antigonids, Lysimachus, and various other satraps and steppe nomads. He was married to an Iranian wife like Alexander and was reasonably open to the idea of integrating them to his empire. I don't think there's any real comparison with the other Diodohoi that could have matched his accomplishments. Question 19 from Alec. Without the benefit of hindsight, who would be best suited to preserve Alexander's empire in 323? And why is it not Seleucus? Or was there such a person in the first place? So, the Argead Empire was on a knife's edge the moment Alexander died, and frankly, it'd be a monumental task for anyone to try to retain some sort of unity, unless Alexander had an heir that was of age or nearly of age to quickly assume the throne. You need someone with a military prowess to be able to deal with the rogue commanders, or possess enough personal clout and political cunning to keep them reined in, or discreetly disposed of if needed. Uh, a dramatic reform of the Empire's administration and focusing on consolidation versus expansion would also be absolutely essential. I think for this reason, Seleucus could have been the one to do it. We've seen his ability to command on the field of battle, his willingness to assassinate others who need to be taken out of the picture, his building administrative program in places like Syria demonstrate he has a keen understanding in how to properly run the Empire. Uh, I mean, the Empire's sheer size was a huge problem though, no pun intended. And even the Seleucids could barely keep up the task of managing their own domain, which was reasonably smaller than that of Alexander's. 
I mean, it's very hard to tell if it could have been salvaged at all, unless if Alexander maybe lived another 15 to 20 years and kept it tied by his force of personality and military brilliance. Um, but, I mean, the way he was going, I don't think he would have made it past 40. So, uh, well, ultimately, we will never know. Uh, question 20 from Alec. Could we use Seleucus' success as a statesman to validate Alexander's policy of orientalization as appropriate under the circumstances? I've always believed that Alexander adopting the characteristics and imagery of a Persian king was completely understandable, and probably essential to maintaining the legitimacy to his claim over the empire. Anyone ruling over such a vast body of land and peoples would have to come to terms with the indigenous inhabitants to at least some degree, and especially for the likes of Seleucus, you had to draw upon Iranian manpower to fill the ranks of your armies, or utilize Babylonian administrators and scribes. The Ptolemies did this as well with the native Egyptians to a lesser extent. I mean, you can't always say that things were done for pragmatic reasons. It's more than likely that the Hellenistic monarchs must have had admired or at least enjoyed the customs that they adopted. Otherwise, I don't think they would have been as willing to incorporate those elements. Uh, conversely, I do believe that the Hellenistic kingship is much more closer to the traditional Macedonian-styled kingship than it ever was to a Pharaonic Egyptian or a Near Eastern one, and that almost all of its power is rooted in the expression of Greek culture and backed with Greek military might. I think that them adopting these characteristics was essential, but I never, I don't think for a moment they lost sight of what their original, you know, what their cultural legacy was. They, they were Macedonian through and through, and that's something that's reflected all the way down to Cleopatra, who was still being raised as a Macedonian woman. Uh, question 21 from Juan. In the immediate aftermath of Alexander's death, it seems like a lot of the Diadohoi tried to imitate Alexander's ruling style and personal quirks to gain legitimacy. Did later generations of Hellenistic rulers keep up this imitation, or did it become less politically useful to imitate him after the initial Diadohoi wars? To some extent or another, most of the Hellenistic kings would try to imitate or use Alexander's image and legacy and use it to make their rule seem more legitimate. I mean, for sure, it was more pronounced during the wars of the successors, since you have people like Ptolemy shrining Alexander's body, uh, Eumenes of Cardia speaking to a ghost of Alexander on an empty throne, people claiming relations through marriage or shared parentage, and I mean, a couple of the Argeid family members were assassinated because of that potential use that they had as for other successors to claim the throne. I'm thinking mainly of like Cleopatra or uh, Eurydice's mother. Uh, oh God, Adea, I think is her name was. I could be wrong. I will, I'll look that up later and I'll find out. But besides that, I mean, Plutarch has that famous passage, I think, both of his biographies of Pyrrhus of Epirus and Demetrius Polyarchides where the Macedonian soldiers were kind of frustrated with many of the successors who imitated Alexander only in pomp and circumstance, but not in his martial virtues and willingness to throw himself in the thick of battle. I think Pyrrhus was like the ultimate example in their eyes, at least according to Plutarch. This image is probably overdrawn since only one of the Diodohoi actually died in bed, and the rest died while on campaign or in battle. Uh, mine is Demetrius, who died of alcoholism, but that, you know, that, that's secondary. I think 
once you have the establishment of the dynasties and as the memory of the Argyad house gradually faded over successive generations, the importance of maintaining that Alexandrian image or connection to Alexander also declined. The connection to the Archaid House may have been of extreme importance initially for backing up legitimacy, but when the criteria for becoming a king was more about you having enough military power to back up your claim rather than any sort of Archaid heritage, especially since the Archaid House was effectively extinct by the turn of the 4th century, then it didn't matter as much. I mean, it never entirely disappears though. And even Mithridates VI of Pontus, or the Roman emperors in the 4th century AD, continued to evoke that image. And more indirectly, anyone who idolized Alexander in the Middle Ages and beyond continued to use that idea or image. But yeah, so to make it more concise, yes, it became less important over time, but never completely faded away. And uh, perhaps it was never as important in the first place? It, it's just one of those things that is kind of passed down. We'll have to, I, I have to reconsider that sometime. Question 22, also from Juan. John McTavish mentioned that Hellenistic rulers incorporated native people's fighting styles into their armies. Did they ever attempt to train non-Macedonian Greeks to fight in the phalanx or hoplite style? Or did they strictly reserve that role for Macedonian Greek settlers? And if so, why? I've read in a biography that Alexander tried recruiting Persians into the phalanx before his death, but I never heard any of them being used in combat. So, a few months ago, I had the pleasure of interviewing the PhD student John McTavish about the Wars of the Diodohoi, which is an excellent companion piece to my original series, so check that out if you haven't. Like we talked about in episode 48, it almost became impossible to have an army without recruiting the indigenous peoples to bolster your ranks, at least when referring to the Hellenistic world. And those indigenous peoples oftentimes outnumbered any of the Greeks and Macedonians that you fielded. Um, as far as I understand, there was a major difference between incorporating Iranian cavalry or infantry versus actually incorporating them into the Macedonian phalanx as phalangites. In my, in my memory, there are only a few recorded cases of such a thing happening. As Juan mentioned, there's the Epigonoi, which were Iranian boys given a Greek education and training as phalangites by Alexander. Uh, but their inclusion helped kick off the mutiny of Opus by many of the Macedonian rank and file, which, according to Arian, felt like they were being replaced. Uh, how how true of an interpretation that is, I, I can't say, but from memory, I believe that the Ptolemies explicitly armed the native Egyptians in such a manner two times. Uh, the first being the reign of Ptolemy I in the battles against the armies of Demetrius Polyarchides. I, I think the Battle of Gaza had native, Maced native Egyptian troops armed in the Macedonian style. I, I can't remember off the top of my head. The second and uh, more obvious example is during the Fourth Syrian War at the Battle of Raphi in, I think, 217. Um, traditionally, the decision of Ptolemy IV to give Egyptians Macedonian arms has been seen as a uh, short-term gamble, I guess, which helped defeat Antiochus III in the, in the present, but resulted in the increased confidence of many Egyptians, who then promptly kick-started a revolt that lasted like two decades. This seems like a bit of a simple explanation, and I am not entirely sure if I agree with it, but I'm curious if my perception will change over time, but I gotta learn, read more into that, because that's generally the explanation that I've heard of. But I, there is a certain degree of 
understanding behind it where the cornerstone of any Hellenistic army is the phalanx and it sort of carries that cultural connotation of importance. It's the, it's all about the phalanx, all about the phalanx. If you make that kind of your core center of your ideology, then if you start introducing native Egyptians or native Iranians into that, then you're kind of disrupting that presentation. Now, it needs to be brought up that though many of the Macedonians, I'm going to put that in quotes, Macedonians serving in the armies of the Hellenistic kingdoms uh, were probably of mixed ethnic or cultural backgrounds. I mean, there were only so many Greek women living in the colonies of Central Asia and Egypt. And from, in my opinion, it was inevitable that intermarriage between these Greco-Macedonian and indigenous communities would occur. From Egyptian tax records, I think it's almost entirely Greek men with native women. Additionally, the concept of ethnicity, as the ancient Greeks may have understood, might have been a little bit more loosely defined and could very well have been an ethonym of the style of warfare. Um, for those you know don't know that term, an ethonym is a, where you would use the name of a location or culture and try apply that to like a style of warfare or style of armor. For example, a Cretan archer may not necessarily be a man from Crete, but fights in the Cretan style. Uh, much like how the Thracian gladiators in the amphitheater were not always of Thracian origin. Uh, I have to read more into this topic uh, because that sort of mentality is really tied up in how one views the relationship between the Hellenistic kings and their native subjects, or even the degrees of separation you have between the classes of Greek and non-Greek society. I, I mean, I think, I, I believe it's Bezel Barkakva, who is an author of many works on Seleucid military history, argued that the Greeks and Macedonians would not really intermarry as much based on that, based on a cultural conservatism, but I don't know if that's necessarily the accepted general idea. But, uh, I mean, I, gotta, I, I plan to incorporate more discussions on the structure of Hellenistic warfare in the future either as a single episode or spread out over many episodes. Probably during my in-depth looks on the Hellenistic kingdoms, like uh, definitely going to be talking about the clerarchy system when it comes to being a Greek in Ptolemaic Egypt. I think that's almost inseparable. Th this is something we'll do in time and I have to plan it out a little bit more, but I think we'll definitely see more in the future uh, about Hellenistic warfare, more specifically, not just the battles and events. Question 23 from Ramsey. Why did Ptolemy IV not take advantage of his victory at Raphia against Antiochus III to take further territory in Syria? The Battle of Raphia was the climax of the Fourth Syrian War, uh, fought between the Seleucid Empire under Antiochus III and Ptolemaic Egypt under Ptolemy IV in 217, and was probably the largest engagement of the Hellenistic world since, like, Ipsus in 301. Despite Antiochus's military experience, the Ptolemies actually won the battle, which forced Antiochus to retreat and lose all the conquests he had made in Ptolemaic Syria and Phoenicia. Uh, one thing that's puzzled scholars about the whole affair is that Antiochus got off with relatively light terms. I don't even think he had to pay any sort of war indemnity, and Ptolemy didn't press him any further for northern Syria. I think there are a number of reasons why this may have been the case. Uh, number one, Ptolemy IV was a notoriously weak king and never really militarily minded. Antiochus, on the other hand, had been successfully campaigning for about six years or so, and although he lost like 14 to 15,000 men at Raphia, he still had an, a huge army of I think at least 50,000, which is a very, very big number for someone who, despite his big losses at Raphia, was a talented commander. 
Uh, number two, I think there's a mention in the Raffia decree of Ptolemy IV, where it talks about how there was some sort of treachery by the commanders of the troops uh, shortly before peace treaties were signed. I'm guessing it refers to Ptolemaic commanders, but the exact nature of this betrayal is pretty vague. Uh, but the Ptolemaic court this time was an absolute mess anyways, and I wouldn't be surprised if factionalism between competing courtiers led to a lack of unified vision or ability to coordinate. I also have to wonder if having 20,000 armed Egyptians made the Ptolemaic government super nervous. I mean, these were people were probably immediately disbanded after the war, which cuts the Ptolemaic heavy infantry in half and prevents them from doing anything else but consolidation of their previously lost territories. This is perhaps a question that's best answered when we reach the Fourth Syrian War, uh, probably sometime in the first half of 2020, but I think there is some reason why they would, wouldn't want to press any further, though had it been not a Ptolemy IV and maybe a Ptolemy I, I could definitely see them pressing further, but I think once they, I don't think they would have taken their Egyptian troops forward north or even leave them armed in, in Egypt while the rest of the Ptolemaic army disappeared. And Antiochus' skill, you know, even if he lost that many, was still much more than Ptolemy's. So, yeah, I think that I think there are a couple reasons why that wasn't the case. Question 24 from Sly. It's obvious that the Romans took a great amount of influence from the Greeks in terms of culture, art, religion, edu education, etc. But do you think that the Romans took more influence from the archaic classical period of Greek history or the Hellenistic period? This is a really interesting idea, but uh, let me put forward another question. Can we consider the Etruscans as being Greek or even Hellenistic in culture? Uh, because without a doubt, during the early period of Roman history, the major influences came by way of the Etruscans, which impacted their religion, language, art, uh, their warfare, I think they gained the hoplite, and either it's the Samnites or the Etruscans, I think it's the Etruscans, uh, they gained their taste through for gladiatorial combat. However, Etruscan culture itself bore resemblances to archaic Greek culture. Despite their likely Near Eastern origins, I think they are saying that they come from Anatolia. I don't know what the... I'm not, I'm not big into haplogroups by any means, but I think they've genetically tested any populations and they seem to be from the Near East, which agrees with some of the historical sources, which I think say Lydia? Uh, anyways, that's irrelevant. But uh, one book on early Rome that I recommend is Gary Forsythe's uh, A Critical History of Early Rome, which delves into this topic in considerable detail. With the increased contact with the Greeks of Magna Graecia and the eventual collision with the Hellenistic world, the Romans began to import the high culture of Greece, um, you know, philosophy, artwork, uh, history, and the sciences, but you know, also cults and other religious rites. Uh, the Greek language was quickly adopted by the upper class as a language of learning, um, much like how French was spoken by the royal families of Europe during the 19th and early 20th centuries. Yeah, I mean, the eastern portion of the Roman Empire remained thoroughly Hellenistic long after Rome took control there, with Latin being eventually replaced as the administrative language by the reign of Justinian I in the 6th century AD. So, I could see the argument going both ways. The way that I personally would frame it is that Greek culture in the Hellenistic period was more important for the upper class of Rome, 
whereas the plebeians and lower class Romans were more influenced in their day-to-day -day life and religion by their earliest encounters with the Etruscans. I don't really think that's a terribly satisfying answer, and when, as I'm even saying this, I think it's possible that you can lean more toward the Hellenistic being influential if we maybe say that the development of Hellenistic Judaism and Christianity is part of that. Uh, but that's a rabbit hole I don't want to really go down, but uh, yeah, I think it depends on what you're trying to say is influential to the modern world, or I guess more influential to the Romans themselves. Question 25 from Philip. Who is your favorite Hellenist or Roman imitator of Alexander? Now, there are quite a bit of the uh, imitatio Alexandri in the history of the Roman Empire. Uh, despite their love-hate relationship with the Macedonian king, I'm looking at you, Livy. Scipio Africanus was a noted Philhellene and popularized the idea of going clean-shaven, which was a very Alexandrian and Hellenistic style to pull off. Uh, Pompey the Great is pretty obvious, and if if it's a even if it's like a somewhat sarcastic title at the start of his career. Both Julius and Augustus Caesar deeply admired him. Uh, there's that famous image in Plutarch where Julius Caesar collapses in front of the statue of Alexander and just sobs hysterically that he didn't feel like he accomplished anything at the same age of like 33. So they're the Roman emperors Trajan and Julian the Apostate both openly compare themselves during their campaigns against the Parthian and Sassanid empires, which are an analogous form of, of, of ancient Persia, though obviously one was way more successful than the other. Uh, but I think that my absolute favorite has to be uh, the Emperor Caracalla. I mean, even on a good day, Caracalla was not the most uh, well-balanced individual, but the dude was just obsessed with being like an Alexander fanboy. Um, I think Cassius Dio, or the Historia Augustae, I'm not too sure, refers to him using like artifacts belonging to the Macedonian king, uh, wearing Macedonian clothing. Caracalla basically recreated a fully functional Macedonian phalanx in the third century. There are archaeological finds that show Caracalla basically LARPing as Alexander on treasure and statues. Um, to use an analogy, uh, if everyone else liked watching Star Trek and considered themselves just fans of the show in general, then Caracalla would be an obscenely spoiled trekker who turned his house into a two-scale version of the Enterprise and funds private showings of a Klingon Christmas Carol. Dude was just crazy. He puts anything I do to shame, so, you know, kudos to him. And question 26, the last one, from Jeff. Who would win in a wrestling match, Socrates or Antigonus the One-Eyed? I'd put my money down on Socrates. Uh, sure, the One-Eyed has years of military experience compared to the gadfly of Athens, but Socrates can drink like a fish without keeling over, which is pretty impressive. Socrates was also short and stocky, kind of built like the Kool-Aid man, and had apparently had incredible endurance. I mean, wrestling is all about endurance, and Antigonus got pretty corpulent later in life, and he had access to the wealth and luxuries of a king, while Socrates was living pretty rough on a diet of wine and constantly asking questions. Gotta go with Socrates on this one. And with that, that marks the last of the questions for the Q&A. And that marks the last of the questions for the Q&A. Oh god. Uh, Maybe if I get towards the end of the series, I will do another Q&A. Um, we can see if my opinions have changed in any way, shape, or form, because 
I almost guarantee I'll, you know, release this and then go read a book in the next few days and then radically change my mind on uh, any of these, some of these interesting topics. Uh, but I mean, I can't even imagine 10 episodes from now, uh, never mind a hundred. So I'm going to kick that can down the line and we'll get there when we get there. Anyways, uh, thanks for all the questions you listeners have sent in. It's been really fun coming up with the answers because it made me think a little bit more about, you know, all my little, you know, cruddy hypotheticals I pull off when I'm just talking to my friends or anything like that. So, and I've changed my opinion when I've been formulating these. They've been uh, pretty interesting to come up with uh, actual arguments. So, you know, thank you very much for that. Um, Episode 51 will be released in a few weeks and uh, we'll follow our normal routine show format. Uh, We're going to stick more around the Black Sea again. Um, But uh, anyways, uh, you know, again, thank you so much for listening. And uh, until next time, you've been listening to the Hellenistic Age podcast.